at the beginning, that initial note round, the seed round, was probably the hardest round we ever had to raise because of what we were. We were a community going after this community play, being told you can't do that, the no clear monetization. So I think that was $500,000 and it took us a year and a half to raise that initial money. We just raised $11 million last fall and it took less time than that. So you got to just find the right people who believe in what you're doing, that you are the one who can execute it and that the market is there. This is Get Shit Done a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, Head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, friend. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Today, I'm happy to bring you this conversation with Sarah Smith, founder of The Dirt, where they make finding all of your camping needs from campsites to supplies seamless in one place. Now, let me hype Sarah up a little bit because this queen has been able to scale a multi-million dollar business and raise 22 million. And she's going to break down how the heck she pulled it off, such as focusing on the 1% of their community, not 10, 1% of their community that contributes to their platform Think about all those websites you go to to get feedback and reviews. Well, for the dirt, 1% of their community is driving that. So they're contributing 4 million photos, reviews, and tips just on campgrounds alone. 1% blows my mind every time I think about it. This just goes to show that you do not need to serve everybody. Stop it. We also dive into how they monetize the platform by listening to what users said they wanted and would be willing to pay for. So y'all ready to catch these gems about to be dropped? All right, let's get it. But before we get into it, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. This really helps us serve more folks like you while achieving our mission of scaling impact by providing access to unfiltered, transparent information on how to successfully grow your business on your own terms. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join. And never forget, friends, fuck 4%. Women own nearly half of businesses, but only generate 4% of total revenues. That's why we show up here every single week to give you this information. That 4% goes up here with our movement. So you're in the right place. And without further ado, Queen Sarah Smith. Sarah, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am not going to tell her what the weather is like in New York because it is dreary in Portland where she is located. And I totally empathize because I'm a Seattle girl. My family's all there. So I know. So you understand. 
I know those dreary days. It's so funny. It's like there are cities where I feel like I'm back home, which is Oregon or or Portland and yeah. London. Oh, yeah. Very yes. Dreary. Very dreary. So, yes, I'm so excited you're here and to check in. What is one word to describe how you're feeling in your business today? Because it changes so much, right? Uh, yeah, that is such a good question. I would say hopeful, I think. Hopeful. I don't know. Hopeful isn't like not hopeful, but like I, I just well, we can get more into this, but I feel like the business, the dirt is at a place right now that I had already always dreamt it would be as far as like what I wanted to build. And now it's just about continuing the execution of what we've finally figured out where our community meets a revenue stream and it's all kind of coming together. So it's like so exciting to be at this point. Amazing. Yeah. I'm in the same group of emotions as you. I'm optimistic. And it's like a, it's like a childlike optimism where I don't know. I'm just, I have a lot of faith in everything we're doing. And despite the ups and downs, it's just like, everything's going to be figured out. Like it's just, it just is because why wouldn't it? Yeah. Things work out at the end. You just just have to keep plugging along and keep your vision top of mind and keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. So we want to talk about all the amazing things you've done to get to where you are with the dirt, but want to take it back a little bit and give everyone context for how you even got here. So tell us what were you doing? What were you all about before you even started the dirt? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't know if I do follow a path or I don't follow a path, but for me, I had, I was never an entrepreneur. That was not my thing. I actually worked in international education for years. So I worked in study abroad programs and international student exchanges. And I spent 10 years living abroad, London and other rainy places. And really felt passionate about what I was doing, which was helping young people experience experience cultures different from their own. And then Kevin, my husband and I moved to Oregon and we were new to Portland and loved to camp and really just kept coming across this problem that it was really hard to find a campground online. And I had no intention of ever starting a business. I loved what I did in my other field. But I kept saying, why doesn't someone build this? Why doesn't someone do something about this? And after you say that enough times, it kind of dawns on you. Well, I am actually someone. I'm capable. I can figure this out. So I decided to start doing it. And that was actually back in 2012 when the idea was born. That's amazing. So how did you even get started? You know, that's a good question. And I always tell people, I think the hardest thing for people to do is that very first thing of declaring, I am doing this and I am going to give it a try. I'm going to try. People have ideas all the time and I I meet those people and I'm like, so what are you going to do next? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, you got to start. You got to do something. So like, 
I would go to events, you know, I had this idea of formulating I had done research in the market. I knew it was a viable market with a, a good return possible. And I'd go to events and I would just tell people what I was doing. And I started, it, you know, the imposter thing. I'm like, what am I talking about? I don't even know what this is yet, but you just keep owning it and saying it to people as you're working in the background. And it's very awkward at the beginning. And I think that's really a hard step for people to take when they're they're first coming up with their ideas. So true. It's so interesting, like the the part about just doing it. I'll never forget I had a mentor when I was in undergrad when I started my first company. And that was when like the social network movie came out about Facebook and all of that. And everyone was like on high alert about someone stealing your idea. And I see that today where like Founders would be like, oh, something about it, in, like the really intense ones, like NDAs and all of that. They were like, no mm -hmm. one has time for that. So true. <laughs> no, like no one has time for that. Yeah. But he said something because I was like that. I was like, so to the chest with it. And he told me, Alex, like no one cares about stealing your idea. They just don't. Uh -huh. He's like, there's a very small percentage, and that's a very, very small percentage that that would happen. But he made it very clear too that, you know, let's say someone tried it and they, you know, quote unquote, steal your idea. At the end of the day, no one can ever execute the way you execute because they don't have your lived experience. So exactly. even the fact that you said with you and your partner, you had this very a unique experience of what that looked like or why you wanted to solve that problem. I totally can see that. And I, I remember early on for a little bit thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't tell people about this. Someone's going to steal it. And then I'm like, nobody cares. They're, they're all doing their own thing and worrying about their own issues. And, and like you said, I, I executed it probably way differently than they would have anyway. So. And it also like reminds me of this idea of, in, in the startup space, we get so obsessed with competition. I don't even use the terminology competition. I call them other players. I think the mm. problem with competition is like, it's such a scarcity thing where it's like, there's can only be one. And it's like, no, if you go to the grocery store, you know what you're looking at? A lot of the same thing in different packages. Right. Pretty yep. much. Yeah. So it's so that that really stood out to me. So tell me, tell me a little bit, you know, about or tell the audience a little bit about, you know, this business and what problem is it solving for? Yeah, sure. So the dirt is the top ranked camping app and website for people to find and book campgrounds. The original concept was kind of like Yelp for camping. Just like I said, we would go camping every weekend and we called it our Tuesday night fight where we would get so frustrated with trying to figure out where to go camping that weekend. And because I would go online and the the government websites I would look at were just not helpful. They were one dimensional. I wanted to hear what Alex thought about the place she went last weekend. I wanted to hear what Dan thought about the place he went two weekends ago. And, and I wanted to see your pictures and I wanted to get a feel for it. And that didn't exist. And it was very frustrating. So we'd fight and be like, someone should figure this out. And, you know, now I just, it's amazing. We have, it took us six years to get up to 2 million photos, reviews, and tips of campgrounds all throughout the United States. And now we have, we doubled that in the last year. So now we have 4 million. So we've really hit a point of, 
amazing growth in our user generated content of the dirt, which is what makes our platform special and unique. But now we've in 2020, we launched the dirt pro, which is an upgraded version of the dirt, the dirt's free, the basic concept of the dirt, finding campgrounds throughout the U S whether you're looking for an RV resort or just first camping or a state park or whatever kind of camping you do, but with the dirt pro. For $36 a year, you get some upgraded features like cell coverage maps, National Forest and Bureau of Land Management maps, which is important for people who disperse camp because you can camp wherever you want within that land within reason um, and things like and discounts. So it's really an exciting time, like I said before, because it took us years to build up this community and we always knew this problem needed to be solved never met a camper who didn't say, yes, it's so hard to find a camper online. So we knew the problem needed to be solved. It was just about how to go about executing it and where that path led, which is really exciting to be at this point now. It's so interesting because the model that you have is very, very based on users. And, you know, we talk about so much around traction on this, you know, this podcast and I get you done in general. And we define traction in a few different ways because some companies aren't necessarily always focused on getting, you know, revenue initially. So can you walk us through how does your business model work and what were, you know, and what were you all doing early on to get to monetizing it? Yeah, that's a good question. And now how the business model works is, you know, there's almost 70 million Americans who camp in this country. And it costs $36 a year for the annual pro subscription. So it's an annual reoccurring revenue model, subscription model. So users pay this to get these upgraded features. The thing that's really interesting that we just added in the last few weeks is if you become, if you're booking a campground on the dirt, we're really leaning into bookings this year and trying to get as much bookable inventory as we can. When you do a booking on the dirt, you will be offered the chance to upgrade to the dirt pro and not pay that extra booking fee and never have to pay those additional booking fees ever again. So it's almost like prime, like Amazon prime, but for camping, no one in our space has done this. So we're really, really excited about this new direction. We're going with that. So that's where we are now. But when we first set out to solve this problem, we we didn't really know, honestly, how we were going to monetize it. And you can imagine how difficult it was to get investors early on and having people say, well, you're trying to build a community. Do you know how hard that is? That's like impossible. Good luck. <laughs> I'm out. But we did have enough people who believed that the market was big enough. And if we kept, if we worked at solving this problem, there would be opportunities like commissions off bookings or other things. So we kept plugging along early on, we needed to figure out how to make money. So we did weird things that I went, went, we knew it, they weren't sustainable. They weren't the direction we wanted to go, but we did like, we worked with outdoor brands where they would help promote the dirt and they would get a contest on the dirt. So for years, how we got campers to submit content is we made it into a game. So Alex, let's say you're camping up in New Hampshire and you come back from that experience. You can review a camp, the campground that you went to. 
and you get points for the photos, the review, and you go up and down a leaderboard in that region, the like New England region. And then at the end of the month, you would get a prize from one of these brand partners. And so those brand partners would, would pay us money for being a part of this. And we would make content for them. Like we'd write about their user using their product out camping. And so it was kind of like this agency work with brands, outdoor brands. And we knew it wasn't a tech thing that we wanted to continue doing. It was really hard. It was very, it was very like time consuming, but we, we were just trying to do what we could to generate income so that we could rely less on investors. That was a long answer. Sorry. No, that's great. I I love these things because, you know, I think so often we of it as messy and there's always such interchangeable jargon and buzzwords around scale, growth, blah, 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 whatever. And we don't really talk about the messiness that happens to get there. And Mm -hmm. so I love the fact that you broke that down. I would love to know when you first came out the gate, did you know to go into those partnerships that were giving you the money? Like how long did it take for you all to actually monetize? Yeah, it took us a while because they're like, who are you? Why would we give you money for this? So what, you know, what happened is we were like, how do we get, we knew that Dirt was all about this user-generated content. And you know this, like how, it's so hard to get someone to even come to your site or app, let alone then sign up for an account, let alone then give you their content. That's really hard. So from the very beginning, we were like, well, we have to figure out how to incentivize people to do that because that's what makes our platform special. So, you know, at the beginning, we would talk to these outdoor brands and we didn't even have a website built yet. We would show them designs of what was coming and they, all they had to do at the very beginning was give us the prizes, which were like hundred dollar gift cards and then pay a $500 fee to us because we wanted to tell our investors, see, we could make money. Even if it was only $500, we wanted something to prove that, that it worked, that something worked. So that's how it started. That was $500 from each of these brands. And it was very small. And then we were like, okay, well, we could do more for these brands to make them want to pay us more. And so that happened and they would pay us, you know, a thousand to a couple thousand dollars a month, each brand. And we would write and help them with SEO and all this stuff that was not very tech company related, but it was a way to get some revenue going while we continued to try to figure out what our sustainable revenue model could be. I love this. And you, you've already mentioned this and hinted at it a couple of times. So you've raised capital and you've raised about 22 million today, which is incredible. Uh Yeah. But I I want to go to the why I think so often you know, the startup space glamorizes raising capital. And it is a huge feat to raise it because there's only less than 1% of companies will raise. It's just not the vehicle for most businesses. So many people are like, we need more, we need more VC out here. And I'm like, we don't though, because VC is not the right vehicle for most businesses. So I want to understand why did you choose the VC route? And when did that start for you? When did that journey start? in the business. Yeah. And I, and when I meet with founders too, I always like, if they're early on, I'm like, do you really need to raise money? I mean, really think about it and analyze it before you jump into that world. 
for us, we really did because we wanted to solve this problem and build this community, but there was no clear monetization path. So we didn't, we were doing this agency work. It wasn't really sustainable or scalable. So we needed, you know, we needed to be able to hire people and keep our business running while we figured this out. And that's what, that's what we were doing. So it took us, we bootstrapped, you know, it's funny because I started the dirt first and my husband, Kevin, he is one of the most serial entrepreneurs. That's all he knows. And he was doing an earnout from another tech company and he wanted to quit and join me. And I'm like, can you please just keep doing this job so that we can fund this and I will ah, work with the contractors. Yes, so we, the messiness. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he kept doing that job so that I could pay the contractors and work with them and get like our early betas done. Very, very MVP. But you know, that took a couple years to get that going. It was a little slower for us because it's, it's building a community is really hard. It's not like I'm, I'm like building this thing and selling this thing. It's a different beast altogether. Eventually, uh, you know, I did a accelerator in Colorado and at the end of that, I, Kevin quit his job and joined me. And that's when we started raising full-time. Again, the messiness it's, you know, yeah. I love, I love this because it's so critical, especially a, a lot of founders do this, but because my world is with women entrepreneurs, you know, the idea of being, having it perfect before you get started and mm -hmm. We don't talk about when we hear about someone raising capital, when we hear about someone hitting a certain milestone, we don't talk about what happened before that. And so a lot of times we're comparing ourselves to, well, that person raised and now they have this team. So that means before I raise and have, you know, get to that point, I need to have a, you know, a CTO, a VP of whatever, you know, pick your category. Mm -hmm. And we underestimate what actually happens leading up. Most people do not have full-time people. No. Someone is probably working a full-time job. We have a lot of founders that start and get shit done. And the goal is to gain enough traction so they can leave their full-time jobs. You know, Heather Udo from Shoppable actually said this. She said one of her biggest mistakes she felt she made was thinking that she had to build the company off of this idea of traditional traditional having a traditional team having all these full-time people where she's like i should have just been going for a long time with contractors and i know i know series a companies that you know until they got to series a they actually did that um, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about that messiness so let's walk through a little bit about that fundraising journey because have you always been in portland yes yeah through this journey yes other than the, the accelerator that I did in Colorado, and they were actually our first ever investors, the, the accelerator. And you're not in a market that is known for a strong VC community, so, or investor community. So outside of the accelerator, can you walk us through, what was that journey like for you to raise capital? Yeah, I mean, well, at the beginning, that initial note round, the seed round, was probably the hardest round we ever had to raise because because of what we were. We were a community going after this community play, being told you can't do that, the no clear monetization. So 
I mean, I think that was $500,000 and it took us a year and a half to raise that initial money. We just raised $11 million last fall and it took less time than that. So, you know, it's, you got to just find the right people who believe in what you're doing, that you are the one who can execute it and that the market is there. You have to like find people who believe in those things. And we were, you know, we were lucky to find people who could see it. Um, and it's a much clearer picture now as it is for most startups. Once you're 10 years in, it's like, oh, I, I get it. And you're successful and people know you now. But back then they had to take a leap of faith. And it, yeah, it was, it was a journey. <laughs> So Sarah, I'm I'm just thinking of what some of our audience is thinking right now. Well, Sarah, how do you find them? I can't find them. What did that look like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, some very practical tips. Go like early on, go networking as much as you can. If you, when you meet someone who wants to hear your pitch, at the end of that pitch, say, hey, you've been so helpful. Would you mind introducing me to two people? Just two. Don't say four. Don't say five. Don't say one. Say two. And most people are not going to say no to that. And then end the meeting, send them a little blurb of your intro and say, thanks for agreeing to introduce me to some people. And then that grows exponentially. And we did that a lot, especially in, well, we still do it, but I mean, that's just such a key thing to getting your network bigger because where do you start? I don't know. I'm sitting here in Portland. I, where, where do I start doing this? So starting by networking and keeping the communication up, we also do something where we have a quarterly investor mentor update that we send out. So every quarter, it's very simple. It's the good, the bad, the help needed. And it's just bullet points of what's going well, what, what, could use a little improvement and where we could use some help. And it's just a good way to keep in touch with people who have invested in us, but maybe more importantly is people we, who we may want to tap into in the future who are being kept abreast of what we're doing every year. So those are some practical tips. It's so key here because it reminds me of like, whether it's business development, whether it's, I mean, I think sales and fundraising are very similar. And it's all about that relationship. And I see so often with founders, A, trying to fundraise when they absolutely need it. They're like in survival mode. First of all, you should not be raising when your company is in distress. Yeah. I've done it. I get it. I, I totally understand. But it's like any partnership. You don't want to be with the desperate person, right? So never attractive. It's not attractive. Like, please be with me. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, like, where's the, where's the knife? But can you tell tell the audience, what do you think you did really well at developing those relationships? Because I'm emphasizing here, she is in Portland and Portland's really awesome. Like my friend, Emma, Emma McElroy from Wild Fang is out there, yeah. incredible. So they have a growing, a growing scene for sure. And then also you have, you know, one of our growth allies, Andy Rossick, who's an amazing operator, but mm -hmm. See, you all know each other. So yeah. <laughs> it's very tight knit. And so yeah. what do you feel you did well to develop those relationships? And was it just in Portland? No. So we've, we really built off the relationships we built in Colorado. 
when I did that accelerator. So we have a lot of investors from Colorado. We have some investors from California, Las Vegas. We have a lot of investors. We have a very big cap table, but we, but most of them are in Portland and you know, we've, we've had pretty, pretty good success in Portland with raising money up, up to this point or up, I should say until our last raise, most of the, the major players here came on board at some point of the journey. So yeah, I don't, I've heard it can be really hard and I'm, I'm sure we will face this maybe in our next round, but if there is a next round, which we're all hoping there never is a next round, but yeah, it's been, it, it's been, it's been good for us. So what do you feel like you do well in the fundraising process? Because, you know, from, from how you're answering, it, it, it feels as if it's, it's not the doom and gloom we hear so often about women entrepreneurs raising. So what is it that you feel you're doing really well in these conversations? Well, I, to be clear, it's not just me raising. I have a co-founder and CEO who's my husband, Kevin. So that changes the dynamic. I think of what we're talking about a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, that's your answer. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's a, a good, good thing to point out because, you know, I've heard, you know, a couple people say this, I do not subscribe but i see why but i hear people say you know i brought this guy into the room with me so i could raise and i can empathize with it my last company you know i had two co-founders one of them was the guy he was our cto he never came to me we were like meetings mm -hmm. we were like please just go build stuff like yeah we'll yeah. do it and maybe could it have been you know, faster for us to build or get those, those, in, those checks in maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But we just didn't. So, you know, what do you feel about that when it comes to fundraising? Do you think it makes a huge difference? The fact that he's the one doing it versus you. I do. And yeah. I have also like, you know, we, we do, we do some of it together, some of it separately. And he, has real this has really opened up his eyes this whole experience of doing this with me and being in rooms where the the person is speaking to him and not me about specifically the product which was always my area I'm like the visionary behind the product I worked with the tech team to build the product and, you know, Kevin having to like shift his body language so that it's focused on me and just going to meetings where he was seeing this happening was really, I mean, fascinating. Well, sad too, but, you know, I, he hadn't realized it until he, he did this with me, what, what that experience was like. The rubble in me is just like, oh, that fucking makes me so mad. And, you know, there's probably parts of my journey fundraising where we shot ourselves in the foot, not bringing someone in, but I think we just wanted so badly to prove like, no, we got this. Yeah. But, you know, when you're working within a system that is set up a certain way, sometimes you just have to do what you got to do. And the fact that, you know, 
your husband even knew to do that to make sure no you're going to put your attention on her i will never forget i had a meeting with a potential investor and they came to our office he was going to join this angel syndicate and they had invested a good amount of money and the entire meeting i realized he was sitting next to me anytime the questions around what I did in my role, his eyes would go down. He just could not give me eye contact. Hmm. And it was to the point that the other people in the room were very uncomfortable. And I just remember it was a long 90 minutes. It was a long Gosh. 90 minutes. And I played it off. I was like, okay, I'm cool. And I just remember my previous co-founder was like, after everyone left, like she was like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. And yeah, I, again, played it off. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to stay and do more work. I called one of my mentors and I was like, Keith, what the fuck was that? That's very frustrating. And yeah. So frustrating. And I remember, yeah. you know, calling my mentor and being like, yeah, what the fuck was that? And him really saying, here are some of the options, you know, of, of why mm -hmm. that happened. But more importantly, he gave me great advice. He was like, you know, next time you can call it out in a way where you finesse it. Mm -hmm. He was like, he was on your turf. He was in your office. Right. right. So the next time that happens, he was like, you can be like, wow, you know, it seems like you're a little uncomfortable. Is everything okay? Yeah. Not, yeah. not like, fuck you, dude. You're not giving me eye contact. What's your problem? Yeah. Are, you, are you racist? <laughs> are you this? You know? because there was another woman in the room and yeah, he was giving uh, her eye contact. I was yeah. the only, you know, black person there, you know? Right. But it was so eye-opening to me to say, or, or to even understand how much power I had in situations to say, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, yeah. I do need that, a check, but I don't need yours, right. you know? And this is my turf. And this is why it's so important to get your companies to a place where you don't need anyone's check. Um, yeah, I digress. I Amen. Digress. I hear you. I digress. You know, and you know, one thing I'm really proud of at the Dirt is that we've we're over fifty percent female company, which is really rare for a Portland tech company in the outdoor industry. And you know, that includes our 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 tech team, our developers, our backend developers. Our, so I'm I'm really proud of that fact to get a company with in Portland build up like that. I love that. Well, congrats. That's incredible. Thank you. And I want to talk about, you know, the, the user side of this. So I, I love that you're building a user generated type of platform. And there's a lot of founders out there that are focusing on the user side of, of things. So can you walk us through, and you hinted at this before, you really focus on getting user generated content and you told me that you know before we even recorded is you focus on the one percent of your community yeah. to to even generate that because i think when we think about user generated it's like oh we need everyone but it's only one mm percent -hmm. for you all so can you walk us through what that that looked like yeah yeah and it's based on something called the one nine ninety rule of online community development and that that theory says that one percent of your users will actually provide the content, you know, submit photos, submit reviews, 
9% will upvote it or like it or share it. And then 90% just consume it. And they're never going to do more than that. They, that's where they're comfortable. That's what they're going to do. And so early on, without even knowing this theory or concept existed, we just, we knew we needed to focus on this smaller percent of people who were the reviewers to give us the content that we needed to make our platform worthwhile. And I remember early on in the Dirt's life, back in those beta site days, sharing the Dirt with people, my friends, and they'd be like, I thought you were building a review site. There are no reviews on this. And I'm like, I'm trying. It takes, it takes time to get content to the point where you come to the site and it's not a complete ghost town. So I, I mentioned it earlier, but just to be a little more clear about what we did is we divided the country into regions or states and would incentivize people to give us, you know, because if you're in the 1%, you love doing reviews. We've had, we have some people who have contributed so much content to our site because they love doing it. Plus at the end of the month, if they're the top reviewer in that state or region, they're winning a $100 gift card from an outdoor brand that they love. So then at the end of the month, we wipe the whole thing clean and we start fresh and everyone has a new opportunity at that month to get to the top of the leaderboard and be the winner. And so we've done that literally for years since the very first beta site we did it. My very first beta site was a simple WordPress site. And I wanted to prove that people cared about this concept besides me. So the only technology skills I had was I could, I could manage this WordPress site. So I asked people to email me. They had to email me the name of a campground, where it was located, four photos, a video, and their review. And I had the homepage of this WordPress site that said, help me make the United States green. And each time I get a review from one state, I'll make that state green and the winner will, you will be the winner and help let's make the whole state green. And that summer I, we got maybe two thirds of the United States green. So we got at least one review from a lot of states, but I'll always remember the first time someone I didn't know emailed me a review and I'm like, Kevin, we've got a stranger. I don't know who this person is, you know, and it's so meaningful to have the first people contribute. And I put it up as a blog post because I didn't know what else to do with it. And so you could go to the blog and see someone had just reviewed ABC campground in Texas. And there it was no way to search for it. No way to see other reviews in Texas, but it was just, I want to make sure other people cared about this enough to do this. And, you know, so really early tapping into that one percent or even in that really simple scenario to to help build our our community and our site would just be absolutely nothing without the content and the community around it it would be a shell it would be a directory it wouldn't help solve the problem that we were trying to solve from the, the beginning so we really owe everything to our community I love this, especially around the content piece and then finding those, I think of them as ambassadors. What advice would you have for founders that are taking the direction or using some combination of what you did with whether it's user-generated content or building community? What advice would you have for them in finding those one percenters? 
Yeah, I would, I would say like figure out what, what it is that you need as a platform. Like what is it you're trying to get people to do and then figure out how to like target them, how to like intrigue them, how to make them happy. And even if that's not the long-term play, like, of course we need a platform that's good for the 90% who's just reading it, but figure out what it is you need to do to make your platform special and, and really focus on making that 1%, giving that 1% what they want. What do you all do to make sure you're, you're creating good content? That's a good question. We, so we have a flagging system within our platform. So really our user base, they're so, so passionate about what they're doing in the dirt. If they see anything that's incorrect or offensive or not, shouldn't be on our platform, like it's immediately flagged by our community. And then we have a team also that is, that goes through things to make sure um, everything's good before you had these people creating you know this content how did how did you and your team decide what content to create well we didn't have a team it was just me and it it was just figuring out how to get users people i didn't know to send reviews into me because i needed the reviews to make the platform meaningful. Otherwise you're, you're just going to go to a page on our website where it says blah, blah campground in New York. And there's going to be nothing there of any interest. So I, I knew that just wasn't going to be good enough. And that wasn't going to solve the problem. Got it. So at what point were you, where's the business at when you all decided to create the membership and what did that process look like? Yeah. So we, the Dirt Pro, which offers users different maps so you can get offline capabilities, you can get cell service, you can get the public land so you can see where to go to disperse camping. It was things we had heard from our users because we have such a passionate group of users. They're things we have been hearing them ask for for a while things that they would like us to have and then it was right at the beginning of 2020 that we launched the dirt pro and as you can imagine that is really when camping just took off it was crazy that we just happened to launch our our first our subscription model at that moment and alex it was crazy we we're like are people gonna buy it oh we think they are and to watch it start like just like every three minutes, someone was buying the Dirt Pro. And we're like, what is happening? This is so exciting. And it just, it just took off. And because camping is what people could do. They were, you know, they were socially distanced. They were being outside. So we were a little worried in the following year that it would, it was a blip. It was going to change. What happened last year in 2021 is we saw it triple. So our revenue tripled the following year. So we, you know, and now we're on track to, to do really well again. You know, who knows? It, it's just the beginning of the summer season. But so it, it's really, it was a, interesting because I think the pandemic, you know, we just did a report and there were 8 million new campers last year. So 8 million people 
who had never tried camping before, who gave it a shot last year. And I think once you kind of cross that barrier of camping and you realize how to do it and maybe you purchase some equipment you need, it's it's much easier to continue doing it. So we're really excited about the growth that we see in, in the camping space. And this is a good good point around timing because of everything happening in the world. You have so many people right now that are rethinking how they live. So it's really interesting from a timing perspective. So then Mm -hmm. tell us, what do you feel is one of the biggest mistakes you've made as a founder that has become one of your greatest lessons as a leader? I always love the deep side. Wow. I think, I think one thing I've learned is just not to take things too personally. I think that's been really hard because we're all and I don't know how that translates into being a leader, but you know, I, no, I just it, think, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. It's like, okay. It's, it's, it's very, it is personal. It's when we put our lives into these things. And for me, my marriage, it's personal, but you, ha- you have to learn how to, to, to balance that and take things with a grain of salt and be okay with, with, Thanks. I love that. And our motto at Get Shit Done is fuck 4%. We say that because women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total revenues. And, you know, you and your husband have gotten this company to an amazing place and, you know, sky's the limit. So what are you all focused on now to get the company to the next level? Yeah. So we we we're just really historically we've been known as a place to review and rate campgrounds we are now offering bookings on our site we want to be the the one-stop place for all of camping so you can figure out where to go then you can book it then you can come back and review it to help other people figure out where to go so we're really focused on bookings this year and getting our our bookings inventory up eventually you know we've we've been talking about going into canada for years you know, we would like to be international. So we, if you are a camper anywhere in this world, you use the dirt, you use the dirt to find and book your campgrounds. And that is our our goal that we would like to see in the next five years. Awesome. And what could the folks listening in do to be supporting you and hitting that goal? Oh, well, please check out the dirt, get the dirt, use the dirt. If you would like the the extra tools, buy the dirt. If you like it, review the dirt. All of all of those things, and and maybe even more than that is like get out camping. There's the reason we started this company is because it was really hard to find camping online. And why that matters is because when you go out into the woods, for you know, some people some people don't like camping, but it's it recenters you. It can recenter you. It can refocus you. And if you're a startup founder, you definitely need that. So it's just a, you know, get out camping, get reconnected with nature. And it brings a lot of clarity into your your weekday. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.